Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last to die and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slanders of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue to Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says in the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. The word of the Lord. Smyrna, one of the few great cities of antiquity that remains a great city until this day. Smyrna is now known as Izmir, but this is the church that Jesus had nothing but praise and encouragement for. They were surviving in the middle of a pressure cooker, and it's worth noting that of the seven churches that Jesus speaks to, only the church of Smyrna still exists, still in the middle of a pressure cooker 20 centuries later. As a city, the ancient author Aristides compared Smyrna to the mythical Phoenix as it was repeatedly destroyed by earthquakes and invasions, but was repeatedly rebuilt and reborn over and over. Many scholars believe the name Smyrna was connected to the word myrrh, which was one of its main exports. It was a sweet smelling spice that's placed on the bodies of the dead. Jesus himself received myrrh by one of the wise men who visited him upon his birth. The city was known in the ancient world as the birthplace and death place of the great poet Homer, the bard who composed the world-changing epic poems, the Odyssey and the Iliad. Jesus promises church in Smyrna they would receive a crown as a reward for their endurance under constant pressure. The symbol was apt as a crown because the crown was embossed boldly on all of Smyrna's coinage and the city itself was known as the crown of the region, perhaps because of the evocative shape of the crown of the Acropolis that sat on top of Mount Pagos. John didn't know it when he transcribed this letter from Jesus to Smyrna, but his own close friend and student, Polycarp of Smyrna, would be caught up in one of the most intense periods of pressure in Smyrna's history. 
Just over the hill from the old Acropolis, now called the Catafiquele, is the site where Polycarp died, a very old man at age 86. He had faithfully led the church at Smyrna for, for generations since Jesus' commendation. But when local governments decided to crack down on the church, they focused on its most visible member, Polycarp. The magistrate who was assigned to take the elderly Polycarp to his execution was ashamed by how poorly they were treating this old man. And he offered to let Polycarp off with a warning if he would just throw a pinch of incense and publicly state that Caesar is Lord. Several generations earlier, this sort of proclamation was undertaken voluntarily by those who wanted to leg up in the Roman world and wanted to show off how much they loved Rome. However, in the generations since the voluntary nature of this worship, it had descended into a mandatory action that is required of the government of all citizens. Only Christians resisted this public worship of Caesar as Lord. So when Polycarp refused this easy out, the magistrate became angry and threw him out of the court. Polycarp, undaunted, simply walked on his own all the way to his own execution. The arena was already red with the blood of other massacred Christians, but the crowd was pumped for the prime event, Polycarp. The crowd was chanting, away with the atheists, which was the, their name of the Christians who wouldn't worship the Roman gods. And so the magistrate, once more attempting to spare Polycarp, asked him to join in with the chant and just say, away with the atheists. Polycarp just thought about this for a moment and he went into the arena and he pointed at the entire crowd and he said, away with you atheists. And in time, Polycarp would be proved correct. The dominant cultural, so impressive, so on the inexorable side of history, faded away and the church at Izmir still exists. There are seven letters written to seven churches at the beginning of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And those churches no longer exist, as the video points out. They're, they're not there anymore. Those towns barely exist. But this one, uh, Smyrna, is the, the modern city of Izmir, which is the third largest city in Turkey today. There is still some faithful Christian presence there. Not a lot, though. Out, out of a country of... 85 million people, there's maybe 5,000 Christians in the whole country, most of which live in Istanbul or in Izmir, in the western half of the country. But there, there, there are sti there's still some a faithful Christian presence in that, in that massive city, uh, and, it's, and it's really impressive to see what's going on there. And I think when we look at uh, how people survive in their faith under these harsh conditions, it can teach us a lot of how we can endure under suffering and under persecution. Now, persecution is what I want to talk about today, and it's not a word that we use a lot. It's not something we talk about a lot. Um, but the actual definition of persecution is, is hatred or hostility towards a group of people, usually because of race or politics or religion. If you think about hostility, persecution as hostility um, in regards to race, then we're very familiar with that idea. We may call it racism or systemic racism or something like that, but we have the, we're familiar with the idea that we, it, that we could be hostile and persecute a group of people based on race, and there's been a lot of that in our country. There's a lot of things written and talked about with that. I, I don't have time to get into all of that today, but there's a lot on that topic that you can look at. We also have a history in our country, and in 
really all the countries of the world have done this, um, it, it's persecution because of political beliefs. Think about um, how we reacted towards communism in this country back, say, in the 1950s. We, we systematically started going after people who held certain beliefs, and, and so there was a persecution of that form as well. And there's also historically been something that we would call uh, religious persecution. Now, for Christians, religious persecution kind of started in about 64 AD. So Christianity is kind of born um, with, the, with the death and resurrection of Christ around 27 AD. And then churches get formed and communities start forming over the next few decades. But persecution really doesn't kick off until 64 AD when the emperor of Rome is a really crazy guy named Nero and had, had a reputation for just really wild wild stuff. And Nero decides to burn part of the city of Rome and blame it on the Christians. And so persecution against Christians took off then. This is when it's believed that Peter and Paul were killed in Rome for, for their faith. And the reason they persecuted Christians is because Christians were weird. They were weird in that culture. In, in the ancient Roman world, Christians had different beliefs about marriage. They believed in marriage the way, kind of like you would think uh, marriage now is these one people, one man and woman, these things come together. Um, that's how Christians believe marriage. That was very different than the Roman culture. They had different beliefs about sex. They had different beliefs about race. Uh, and, and Christianity was very much more of a melting pot than the Roman culture was. They had different beliefs around poverty. They had di different beliefs around taking care of children. They had different beliefs about money. Um, so the Christians had these weird beliefs in the, in the Roman culture that were different than everyone around them. Now, Weird doesn't always get persecuted, right? If you think about your attitude towards, let's say, the Amish, you would, you would probably say, and if you grew up maybe around Pennsylvania and you know some Amish folks, you, 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 you might say, oh, they, they, the, this group doesn't live, they live without electricity. Oh, they're kind of weird, right? And, and you might say it's weird, but it's not bad. It's not wrong. You might just say, I could never do that or that's not for me, but they're not bad or wrong. But when you cross the line between you guys over there are weird and you're bad and you're wrong and we need to start stamping out what you believe, that's, that's what you get when that, that's persecution. So that shows up in, for the Christians um, in, in, in 64 AD and, and by 90 AD when roughly these letters were written and beyond, some more persecution pops up. Let me read it to you again, Revelation chapter 2. This is the letter written to this church in Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So there's obviously pressure coming from the Jews even. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. This is a warning letter. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He says, hey, it's coming. The persecution is coming. And, and some of it started, uh, we told you the story on the video of Polycarp. Polycarp was one of the leaders of this church, and, and he, was, he was killed in, in the arena. Uh, so some of it happened then. Uh, but 
persecution comes for the Christians on and off over the next couple hundred years for the church of Smyrna and, and other places around the ancient world um, until Constantine becomes a Christian. The emperor of Rome becomes a Christian. And at that point, he's kind of running with the winning horse that's sort of taking over the Roman Empire. And he decides to become a Christian. And, and at that point, a lot of the, the persecution against Christians really backs off because Christian, Christianity becomes this dominant thing in the Roman Empire. This goes on for a couple hundred years of, of relative peace. Uh, and then uh, in about 650 AD, there's, there, Islam kind of rises up. And, and when Muhammad dies, his, his followers start kind of a violent attack on, on Christians and other groups around, around the ancient world. And so there's, there's some more persecution of people because of their faith at that time. Um, and that comes and goes. It dies off over the, over the, over the centuries. Um, if you think about different stories of persecution of Christians over the centuries, you can find things like uh, if you've seen the movie Silence, or read the book. It is about the persecution of Christians who were missionaries in Japan in like the 15 and 1600s. So there's persecution there. Um, if you think more recent history, you could think of uh, how Christianity was, how the, uh, the, the Soviet Union attempted to stamp Christianity out. And so there's persecution of Christians in the former uh, USSR. So there's kind of that history as well. And there's even more modern situations where persecution is happening around the world today, in, in China, in parts of India, in Indonesia. Uh, there, there's, there's aggressive attacks against Christians. It's, I remember an Easter Sunday about three or four years ago, there was an explosion of a church blown up in Egypt uh, because there's uh, some pretty widespread persecution of Christians in these places. Um, e- even in Turkey, uh, 750 miles east of Smyrna of Izmir is the modern city of Malatya, and um, this, was, this wasn't a story I knew until I, I went over to Turkey a couple years ago. Uh, in Malatya on April 18th, 2007, um, there was a, a pastor named Pastor Najati, and he had two friends with him, a guy named Ur and a guy named Tilman, and the three of them were telling people about Jesus in Malatya. And they had a publishing house. And they brought five young men to the publishing house. And together on that date, they got together to study the Bible. And during that Bible study, these five men uh, sort of rose up against the pastor and his two friends. And they um, bound them up and and gagged them. And as the police were called, they ended up killing them. And so um, you can look this up. It's the Malatya murders. If you look that up, you'll, you'll see it. And it became sort of a nationwide thing in Turkey. Um, but this was persecution and, and violence towards people because of their faith, because they believed in God. Um, and that's not that long ago. These things still go on, um, that people still die for their faith and are still are persecuted in various ways. So I want to look at um, a couple of principles that we can learn about persecution because we live in a country where um, I, I don't know that a lot of us will be asked to give up our lives for our faith to, to die for what we believe. Um, we, we are asked to live for what we believe, which has got its challenges with it as well. But I think there are some principles there that we can learn from the letter to Smyrna about persecution that would actually apply to us today. So number one is this, persecution will definitely come. Look at the letter again, what was written to Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Uh, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but our synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He's guaranteeing it's coming, right? Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
There's a warning he gives to the church of Smyrna and says, man, it's going to get bad. And he puts a, a timeline on it. He says, it's going to get bad for 10 days. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound that bad. I mean, I don't know how bad it was. I don't know what the, the level of persecution. It, look, if people are getting rounded up and, and killed and thrown into prison and all this stuff, maybe 10 days feels like forever. But a lot of scholars suggest that because the 10 is such, the number 10 is such this like symbolic number, and this is sort of Jewish apocalyptic literature of the book of Revelation, that 10 could just be symbolic of a relatively short period of time. So maybe it's not 10 actual days. It's just for a short while you are going to experience a lot of persecution and, and tribulation and hard stuff. Um, but I think we need to remember in this warning that persecution will come, we need to remember that for us too, uh, persecution will definitely come. The idea that we don't ever have to experience it is, is kind, of, it's kind of unusual in the history of the world. We, we sort of believe in America that if we follow Jesus, he will protect us from the hard stuff, from that pain, from that suffering, from that persecution. Um, and, and, and we actually even believe that the lack of, um, uh, of the suffering and of the pain is, is um, a, a, a symbol of God's blessing. We, we almost have this, um, this karma idea that we borrow from Hinduism. We have this karma idea that we bring into Christianity and we go like, well, if good things are going on for you, it's because God's blessing you and, and God blessing you that like the good is flowing. If bad things are going on, it's because you're doing bad and therefore God is not blessing you. And, and so the bad is going to come for you if you do bad things and the good will come for you if you do good things. That's, that's called Hinduism. That is not Christianity. The Bible, and, 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 and if I was to refute that idea of, of the good things come to the good people, I could do it with almost every story in the Bible written over about 1,500 years of different cultures, of bad people get away with stuff, and good people have some struggles. And the scripture says that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous, the good people and the bad people. Like they, they all, we, we all get stuff that, that comes to us, and not all of it is, is deserved. Um, and so we need, we need to know that uh, persecution um, is actually part of the deal. You could say it's kind of baked into the Christian cake. It's, it's part of life, um, and, and it's, it's, it's real. And, and Jesus actually promised it. He didn't just promise it to this church in Revelation. He promised it when he was with his closest disciples. Get this. In John 15, Jesus is having the Last Supper. He has a final meal with his followers, his closest his 12, this, this inner circle. Listen to what he tells them during this meal, okay? He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is the last meal. He's sort of going like, hey, um, here's what's going to happen. The world's going to hate you. And just remember, when the world hates you because of me, they hated me first. Like, you're just following in my footsteps. This is, this is what Jesus tells his best friends. Okay? This isn't like those people over there. This is the inner circle. Guys, it's, it's not going to be good. It gets worse. John 16, listen to this. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. 
But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. They're going to throw you out of the synagogue. Now, now if you're a Jew, your life, your, your, your social well-being is kind, of, is kind of built around the synagogue, your relationships, your friendships, your, your, your extended family, all this. It's around the synagogue. So if you are thrown out of the synagogue, this is, this is social death in that culture. And he's saying, this is going to happen. This is far worse than being canceled and unfollowed on social media. This is everything. And he's saying, this is going to happen to you. They're going to throw you out. And, rem- and he's like, remember, when they come to kill you. I wonder how comforting that was when they were coming to be killed. <laughs> oh, yeah, Jesus said they were going to come and do this. How did he know? This is amazing. He remembered that, and, and you know, would they remember in that moment, like, oh, Jesus promised that these people are going to come kill me. And when they come to kill me, they're going to be thinking that they're doing it for God, even though they're operating against God and against his, his plan. So he lets them know that it's coming, and he, and he says, uh, you, you need to notice this. Now, and and, and I, here's what I want us to get like in our culture today, because we're not living, getting thrown out of the synagogue, right? But we need to pay attention to what is going on around us and understand the signs of what persecution looks like and, and, and what that hostility uh, looks like when it comes. We need, we need to we need to notice this stuff because it's, it's there. At first, they, people will look at you and say your beliefs are weird. Oh, that's just different. Then they will believe that your beliefs are inferior, that they're somehow less than my beliefs. And, and then they'll believe your beliefs are dangerous, and then eventually they come to kick you out of society in some way or eventually to kill you with the backing of the state or the backing of science. This is, this is the model of what happened in 1930s Germany. The Jews were a group that could be blamed for the problem. Oh, we have these problems because of these Jewish people. And their beliefs were different and weird and they dressed differently and they looked differently and they acted differently. They were weird. It's fine if it's just they are weird, but suddenly, maybe not so suddenly, but over time it became they're weird and they're wrong and they're bad and they're what's holding us back. And then all it took was science to come along and say, hey, eugenics, some people are genetically superior than other people, and we should cleanse the races so that we can keep the superior brand of, of humanity going. And with the backing of science, they had what they needed to go start the cleanse, the sort of ethnic cleansing of the Holocaust. Now, it doesn't always end in the Holocaust, um, but we need to understand the warning signs uh, of what's going on. Um, do I think that kind of thing is going to happen in America to Christians? Man, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not uh, a prophet. Uh, I'm not, uh, and I don't want to be all doomsday, but I, I want us to like pay attention to what's going on and notice the signs and, and, and sort of look around and say, like, what are the warning signs when the culture shifts? Um, I heard about uh, this concept over the last year or two when I was trying to understand what is happening in the, the, the country that we live in. Um, it's called the Overton Window. You may have heard of it mentioned in articles and, and, and stuff, but the Overton Window is basically the range of acceptable beliefs that are like politically acceptable for making policies. So uh, if you think about it on this range, right in the middle is it's popular, it's policy, it's popular on sort of the right and the left or in the political extremes and outside of the window. So think of the window as it's okay to believe these things generally, socially, politically. It's okay to make policy around these things. 
Outside of that, you have things like, well, that makes sense. It's generally acceptable. We don't make policies for that. And then it becomes radical, and then it becomes unthinkable out on the ends, right? There's these ideas, oh, nobody would ever do that in America. You can't do that, and, right? So there's this window that is acceptable. Now, think about an example of if you believe, let's, let's go way back in history to 2008, okay? <laughs> if you go back to 2008 and you said, uh, what is marriage, well, marriage is a couple different things. Like you would say, there's some parameters around marriage. But generally, as a Christian, what I would say then, as now, I would say marriage is a covenantal relationship between one man and one woman for life. That's what marriage is. And if I said that in 2008, not a lot of people would argue that. They'd be like, yeah, that's basically it. I mean, I might, I don't know what covenantal is, but fine. It's marriage is basically a man and a woman for life. That's what it is, Right? Barack Obama was saying that in 2008 when he was running for president. That's basically his definition of marriage. And in 2012, Barack Obama's definition of marriage changed, and he said, actually, marriage could be between two men, two women. It's not just this one man, one woman thing for life. And by June of 2015, the law was changed around that, and marriage was then this idea of, no, no, it's not a man and a woman in this covenantal relationship before God for life. It is um, just two people. It could be two men, two men, women, whatever. Um, now, now, if you stand in that space of saying in 2021, marriage is a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman for life, you are standing in the same place you stood in 2008, but the window has moved. And your idea is maybe acceptable, but how far does the window have to move before your idea of what marriage is is bad and wrong and oppressive and not okay and violent and dangerous and all these words that we attach to beliefs that we don't agree with? This is how the window moves. This is how it, um, this is how it happens. Um, another example for me in the 1990s, let's go back further, uh, when I was high school, college, um, the personal personal thing about me, okay? Um, I, and this is not, this is where I was uh, in high school, college. It's not me like bragging or something, okay? Um, I didn't have sex until I was married, okay? So I went through high school, college uh, not doing that. Um, and the reason why uh, is because I felt that the scripture taught that sex is for marriage. Um, now, that's not easy to live out. Um, there's a word for it, celibacy, right? Um, it's not easy to live out. But in that day, my friends outside of the church would have said to me, oh, Chris, like, that's weird, man. Like, but they would respect it. They would say, well, good for you that you hold that line. I can't do it, but I'm glad you could. Like, that's cool, fine, you do you, that kind of thing, right? Um, and so that was kind of a view maybe culturally around that time. Think about how that might have changed since since. 20, 30 years ago. Think about how we would view that differently now. Now we might say something like, oh, wait a second, you're, you're celibate? Like we make movies to make fun of this, the 40-year-old virgin, right? We make fun of this idea because we're moving outside the window. No, this is not okay. Um, you have that belief because of your faith? That's really silly. Your faith is ridiculous. Like don't believe that. That's really dumb. And so we move the idea out and we say, not only is your idea just weird, we don't respect you for having that belief. In fact, we think that you are repressing your own sexuality, which, by the way, is an idea that we have borrowed from Freud, and we pretend it is truth with a capital T, and it is not. 
but we, we act like it is. And we go, oh, you're repressing your sexuality. This is the worst thing ever that you could do. And we treat celibacy as if for, for adults and young, young adults and adults of all ages, we treat it like, whoa, no, that's, that's now out here on the fringe. What are, what are we doing? We're, we're moving the window and we're allowing ourselves to start criticizing and then, you know, and worse and worse, we can ratchet up as, as it goes. Now, I'm not saying that people are going to grab pitchforks and torches and go after everybody who is celibate or everybody who believes in a traditional view of marriage. Um, but it's not hard to imagine a time when the window moves so much that, that we start to persecute people for their, uh, their beliefs. It doesn't start with people getting their heads cut off. It may end there, uh, but it starts in much more subtle way. So Jesus reminds us of that, um, that, that persecution will definitely come, and this is point number two, persecution is not a sign that God has abandoned you. It is common that we believe that, you know, that the good people get the good, the bad people get the bad, this, this karma idea, and we think that if, if we are persecuted, God has abandoned us. Um, in fact, Jesus says, Almost the opposite of that in Matthew chapter 5. Listen to what he says in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Wait, hold up. Typo, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted. That doesn't seem right. No, like struggling are those who are persecuted. No, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted, not for any reason, but for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, and then he gets very specific about it. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says um, persecution and blessing can be actually tied together. Who in the world would connect those things? But Jesus does. Now, notice what he says. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You can be persecuted and think you are doing the right thing, but it might not be righteous. So you can be persecuted for being principled, but you might just be being a jerk, and you're persecuted for that. Because I see people claiming persecuted because they're doing what's right in God's eyes, but sometimes they're just being a jerk. And if you're going to get persecuted for righteousness does not equal canceled for being a jerk, Right? And I, this is a lesson I had to learn I, years, years ago, and I, I, I'm still working on this, I think, but years ago, uh, I, I said something about somebody online. I'm not going to get all the specifics of it, but I said something, and not about a particular person, but about a group of people, and um, sort of joking around and whatever, and I, I made this comment, and uh, somebody called me out on it and said, and, and it was something that I, I felt was right, okay, like, like I think that's right. And, and, and a person called me out, um, someone in the church, and she said, hey, like, what are you doing? Why would you, why would you pick that fight? Why would you say that? Um, and, it, and, and at first, my reaction to being called out on something is probably very similar to your reaction to being called out on something, where I just sort of felt like, well, who does she think she is? Like, how, how can you say that to me? You know, that kind of thing, right? And just kind of indignant or whatever when I got called out. Um, but it, my wife helped me see also, like, hey, no, that, I mean, that's a good point. Like, you need to, you need to pay attention to this. Um, if, if I'm going to stand up and speak the truth of Jesus consistently and say, this is what Jesus teaches, that's going to offend people enough. You don't have to extra offend them by you just being a jerk. 
my wife said something sweet like that, some, some version of that to me. Like, you don't, you don't, like, don't offend people just by you being a jerk. So, so if people don't like what I say, they want to persecute me for my beliefs, well, I mean, maybe they're just persecuting me or canceling me or getting frustrated with me because I was just being a jerk. And that's something I've had to, to wrestle with, of like, man, I'm trying to, I'm, let me just keep the main thing the main thing. I will point people to Jesus. He will offend enough plenty um, if, we, if we follow him. I don't need to pick fights. So, re- so um, remember um, that God is, is with you um, and that he has not abandoned you um, even when you feel persecuted. Uh, as you speak up, and you speak the truth of God um, and you feel persecuted, God is still with you in that. You have, um, you have him with you. You have brothers and sisters in the church so that we do not feel alone. You have a community here that, that will support you. Um, there's a tremendous value to that. And then finally, this, this last point. Persecution can make your faith stronger and will bring you a reward. Let me read back again to what it says to the letter at Smyrna in, in chapter 2. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you, there's a reward here, right? I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Persecution can actually um, make us stronger. There's, there's actually tremendous value in it. And you see this idea of persecution, hardship, suffering, pain. You see all of that in Scripture, not as, it's not, it, those things are not given to us in the Scripture as, oh, you should avoid these things. They are given to us as, these are things that will actually help make you stronger. This is why Jesus' brother James starts his letter this way, James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is he saying? Man, when trials come, when, when pain when hardship, when suffering, when persecution comes, when temptation comes, when all of this stuff hits you and it feels bad, this is a moment that you can, even in that, you can find joy. Anybody can find joy in fun and good stuff, but even in the hard stuff, you can find joy because James says that stuff will mean something to you. That stuff, that, stuff, that pain will produce something in you. It's, it's growing your faith when you deal with hardship and, and, and even when you deal with persecution. And I see this in, in Christians who have been Christians for decades longer than me. Like, if you've been through some crap, well, I mean, sometimes you, you go through that and God pulls you out on the other side and, and you go like, okay, I'm secure. I got this. It's going to be okay. So that when the next bad thing comes along, you see maybe some real solid footing under some believers. You see some people who have been in it a long time and they've gotten the battle scars and they stand there with confidence and trust in the Lord because he has delivered for them. Um, when you've lived through some real hard stuff and God pulls you through, your faith grows. And, when, and also when things go awful and God doesn't show up for you and doesn't deliver for you, even in those moments, you can, you can grow. Um, this, is, this is challenging for me because I think what I want, if I'm honest, is I want a life of no struggle. And I think I'm pretty American this way. I think a lot of us are this way too. I want no struggle. I want no pain. 
And if I have to have pain, let it be in an area of something I don't care about too much. And, if, and, and also let it be quick. And this is how I would like things to work with God and I. I'd like him to deliver the most comfortable, safe life possible and, and shield me from the problems and the hurt and the pain and the persecution and the suffering and the trials. If he could just shield me from that stuff and I'll pray, I'll do my part, I'll pray, I'll, I'll, I'll thank God, I'll, I'll give money, I'll serve people, I will do all the things and if I do that, on my side, God, you as the genie will come out of the bottle and what you will give me is a life of ease and comfort and blessing. This is the way that we, we think it works. Um, and and, and that's, that's not Christianity. Because what happens if I, if, if I don't get what I want? Because you know what this is like. You can follow Jesus and you can pray and it doesn't work. What happens if you pray and she still passes away? What happens if you pray and the doctor does not change the diagnosis? What happens if you pray and you still lose the job? What happens if you pray and your kid still does that thing and, and, and walks away? Like, what happens when you pray and you don't get the answers that you want? What happens if you pray and the persecution is still there? Here's what I think happens when all of that stuff happens. Um, when I pray and I don't get what I want, I come face to face with the shallowness of my own faith. Because the truth is, if I love God because what God will do for me, if I love God because I hope he'll be like the genie coming out of the bottle, the truth of that is, I don't really love God. I just love him for what he can do for me, which is ultimately about me loving me. And so the persecution when it comes, can, can bring something out in us. It can help us come face to face with how shallow our faith has been up to that point. And it can, it can refine us and, and change us. Maybe God allows the persecution to come for that reason. Maybe he sends fire to the church to, to refine us. Fire can destroy. You see this every year in California and out west. You see wildfires, hundreds of thousands of acres, right? And what I've read, maybe you've seen this too, is part of the reason that those wildfires are spreading so badly uh, is because they haven't done the, the work of burning out sections uh, prior to this, like forest sort of maintenance stuff that needed to be done prior to these wildfires. So weirdly, um, if you strategically burn up a section of ground, you will prevent it from becoming something worse later on. And I wonder if that's what God is doing when he allows persecution to come, especially to the church. He's refining us. He's not burning us to the ground, but he's refining us so that the good stuff will come out and that we'll be ready to handle whatever comes. The lesson from Smyrna, I think, is that um, Christians will not always have the wind at their backs. We have in this country somewhat, but we won't always. Um, and, and in many places of the world, Christians do not have the wind at their backs. Um, in, in China, Christianity is very much more underground. In uh, parts of India, Christianity is persecuted. In Sierra Leone, uh, Christianity is working and growing incredibly amongst a, a strong opposition from a Muslim majority. Um, and, and I think there's a, a lesson there that, that we can grow even in the hard conditions. Uh, an author that I, I really like, Nassim Taleb, wrote a book a couple years ago called Anti-Fragile. I've been, I've been nerding out about that book since about 2015. And... Um, he, he gives this concept that I thought is really good. Basically, 
when you say the word fragile, you talk about what, what you mean is when you add pressure to it, it breaks. So a vase, a porcelain vase is fragile because you add pressure to it and it'll break. Well, in his book, he says the opposite of that is not robust or resilient because those words mean that if you add pressure to it, it doesn't break. So the vase is strong. You add pressure, it won't break. He goes, no, in English, there's no word that we typically have for the opposite of fragile. That's why he calls it anti-fragile. Anti-fragile is when you add pressure to it, it gets stronger. And when I first heard that concept, I thought, that's the church. That's historically been the church. When you add pressure to it, it gets stronger. Yeah, it may take a beating for a while. It may go underground. It may have some challenges, but it's going to come back. And it's going to come back stronger because it's an, it's an anti-fragile thing. Um, now, does this mean that I want persecution in America for myself or for the church? No. Um, I've had a small taste of it in Richmond over the last 13 years. I don't know about persecution, but I have been canceled by people. I have been uh, strongly criticized and pushed against, and times I've tried to stand up with conviction about some things, I've had people push back on that. And honestly, when you've experienced it personally, the temptation is, and I'll tell you this from personal experience, the temptation is to sit down and shut up and don't say anything to anybody ever again. Like the temptation is, I just want to say nice things from here going forward. Like I want to, I want to just go the most non-controversial way I can. I don't want to stand for anything. I just want to be quiet because that seems easiest. But what I've had to wrestle with is that is not the way of Jesus. Jesus says hard things. He speaks with conviction. He pushes people. He challenges people. I, I would say he irritated people. Um, and, and, and he drew a line in the sand for people, and some people were drawn to him, and some people walked away. Um, he, was a, he was a challenging person. He didn't just walk around and say nice things. You do, not people, you do not put people up on a cross who all they do is say nice things. That's not why he went to the cross. He went to the cross because he challenged people, and they were envious of his, of his reach and, and, and how he led and so uh, we have to speak up with conviction. We'll talk more about conviction next week. Um, it's going to be hard, but we can endure. If you heard the scripture in Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says this. Um, this is maybe one of the most famous verses in the Bible. He says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You heard that one? You probably heard it because uh, a football player will say it when they get interviewed after winning a game, or maybe a, a gold medalist or somebody, somebody will say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And it's a great verse, except that what it actually is talking about is enduring through hardship. It, it is talking about, Paul right before that says, I know what it's like to have plenty, and I know what it's like to have nothing. Um, you know, I, I know what it's like to be in need, um, and, I can, and I can handle any of it through Christ who gives me strength. Basically, if persecution comes, I can endure because Christ has given me strength. Um, I can endure suffering, hardship, trial, famine, persecution, because Christ is in me. And so my hope is that I don't know your story. I don't know what you're dealing with today. But if you're feeling it and it's coming down on you, the, the, the suffering, the pain, the persecution, the trials, um, I just want to remind you today that because Christ is in you, that is greater than anything else that can come at you. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you for um, the challenge and, and uh, in some ways the blessing of persecution that it can refine us and build our faith and, and help us find uh, new levels of the soul we didn't even know we had. Um, God, we stand with our brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the world in violent ways and we ask um, for an ease of their suffering and we ask for a flourishing of the church in spite of that. And God, as the church in the West, in America in particular, um, I ask that we, um, we will deal with whatever comes our way and, and grow stronger because of, of the challenge, um, that we will not rely on comfort or having the wind at our back in order to flourish, but we will grow in, in whatever circumstance you have us in. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.